welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. This is the first application security focused episode. Today, I'm joined by Dustin Lay, Irene Michelin, Keith Batterham, and Marius Poskus to discuss the human factors of application security. Before we delve deeper into the topic, I'll suggest we'll, we'll work our way around the room with some introductions. Dustin, do you want to kick us off with a brief introduction? Sure, happy to. So I am Dustin Lair. I am Senior Director of Platform Security for Fivetran. Um, I also do application security consulting on the side for companies. Um, my background is in uh, software development, mainly for 13 years before I officially got into security. So spent a lot of time on the other side, uh, which is frankly why I got involved uh, in security, because I wanted to essentially fix it, <laughs> you know, the interaction with uh, with uh, security teams was less than optimal throughout my career, and uh, just saw an opportunity to do things better. So that's why I got involved. Perfect, Irene. Um, yeah, similar story actually. I started my career as a software developer, and then got to be technical lead and responsible for processes as well. And this is where I've noticed. Ouch, we really miss security in our software development life cycle. So I I went through security transformation with my teams and, and I really liked it. I thought, yeah, I want to do it full time. So I went to a security consultancy for about five years, picked up also some pen testing skills. And then I went back to in-house role as application security lead. So I find it very useful who have been on the other side as well for my control. Perfect. Keith? So I think you're going to get a bit of a theme going here, Gareth. Uh, I started my career as a software engineer uh, in the oil and gas industry, where, you know, it's uh, that's an interesting place when you're writing software for uh, um, things that move stuff around. And yeah, so, you know, I'm, I currently, uh, I, I went from software development into operational side, into consulting, uh, currently uh, AppSec uh, practice lead. Uh, most of my time isn't really involved looking at tools. It's looking at people. And I'm glad that this topic's come up because you know, uh, security is a human element, and it's a quality element. So, hopefully, uh, people are going to enjoy the session today. Perfect. And uh, last but not least, Marius. Looks like I'm going to break the mold. So <laughs> I, I didn't come from development background. So uh, I started working a number of years ago in security operations centers, and then I started building security operations centers. Then got involved with cloud security architecture, developing penetration testing strategies, and then started building DevSecOps frameworks, uh, helping secure you know, pipelines and development processes. And I work for a financial services company where I get to touch everything. So from building security operation center to working with developers and securing platforms, looking at um, you know, cloud security architecture and building the whole strategy for for the business in terms of security amazing perfect 
Um, so I suppose you'll all have a question or statement on the human factors within or you know, application security. So I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reason behind it. Each of you will have the opportunity to give uh, your take on the situation. Um, and then we'll work around the room. So, uh, Irene, do you want to kick us off with your question? Sure. Uh, so my question was, in terms of organizational structure, what are the patterns and anti-patterns you have seen for where security team sits within engineering organization structure? Perfect. Maris, do you want to kick us off? Yeah. I think it's obviously there is a few ways you can answer, and I think it, it depends how it works for your organization. I've seen various examples how it worked. I think the the kind of the the rise of the DevOps and then moving into DevSecOps, I think was the main driver of bringing the teams closer together. Uh, I think if you look from legacy point of view, security was the the, the kind of the the department that prescribed kind of security rules and, and requirements for development teams and it didn't always work especially when we started moving into sort of agile development methodologies where you know we needed to make decisions quick and we can't you know security couldn't do anymore you know long reviews create you know penetration penetration testing requirements and things like that so i think that's where the collaboration came about so i'm i'm a big fan of you know, creating security champions, networks, pushing responsibility onto development teams and, and creating, you know, that, that first security iteration within the development team and then creating escalation levels, how we reach, you know, based on risk, based on risk identified through either threat modeling or looking at, you know, the design level, low level documents, and then escalating that to security where, you know, risk exceeds the appetite. And then we can engage security teams. But I think the first level and the first line of sort of security and threat modeling should should sit within development teams and then we can escalate to security but we need to bring security expertise and knowledge within the development teams and, and collaborating between operations security and development perfect and I, you know as soon as you mentioned uh, security champions almost everybody on the call started nodding so um yeah perfect keith do you want to you want to touch on that mute <laughs> it, it, it's really interesting because um I've always come at this from the um, concept that security is everybody's responsibility. I don't um, you know, separate out, you know, developers must have an understanding of what their uh, security concepts should be for the technologies that they use. But yet threat modeling is absolutely fundamental. Um, the problem that a lot of people have with that is it becomes too technical for some of the audiences, which is why you know I have a very consumable way of doing it. Uh, apart from uh, the idea of uh, threat modeling, you know, the other thing is that you build security from the inside looking out, and then what you have to do is verify that from the outside looking in, and then. You can validate that with your periodic pen testing. No, so you have to have this uh, 360 degree view of the world in order to uh, not just build uh, your posture, but actually to validate it as well, because things change. You know, 
Perfect. And last but not least, Dustin? I think everything that was stated so far was well stated. I think um, the challenge in a lot of organization comes down to uh, scale and the fact that the security team is relatively small uh, compared to development teams, which, which naturally means, you know, we can't be everywhere and we do need help from everybody. That's where the security is. Everybody's responsibility uh, is very necessary. Uh, because we, we just can't have eyes everywhere. Um, I think everyone nodded at security champions because I think, and I'm sure we're going to talk about champions all throughout this, this chat. Um, that's kind of what helps us create a culture that's more focused on security. And it, and it does it in a way that's incremental, right? It's not a overnight thing. Hey, everybody, all of a sudden now we're going to, care about security and everybody's going to change their habits. It, it doesn't happen that way. It happens over time. And that's where having, you know, and getting people involved that already have a proclivity towards security to help start a movement uh, comes into play here. Um, I think the other thing that I would point out is that the way that we originally posed the question kind of shows a lot. And that's what are some challenges you know, in organizational setups of security teams versus engineering, engineering teams. <clears throat> I think that's a common mentality that they're separate and that it's sort of a, you know, adversarial almost uh, uh, setup. And I think we definitely need to shift the mindset toward more of a partnership. You know, how does security actually provide value to development teams? How do we partner? How do we create those strong relationships of trust on both sides. Uh, that needs to be a heavily emphasized focus of security teams. Uh, and that's something that I think has been very much missing in the past. You know, we've been like the office of no and the blockers and people who just kind of get in the way as opposed to being seen as value add to the organization, helping people learn and really strengthening those relationships. Perfect. And I'll come back to you, Irene, as you pose the question. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with the answers. Everyone started from the point that security team sits within the engineering organization on the same level as development teams, because where else would it be? And when I was talking about patterns and anti-patterns, there are anti-patterns where security team, even application security team, sits in a completely separate branch of organization on, on the IT or on the risk and legal, and then you're supposed somehow to influence engineers to, to develop secure applications, then you are not even in the same, uh, uh, you know, reporting food chain. So I'm very happy that everyone starts with the assumption, where else would we be? It means it's much more common in the industry now. and. I just wanted to mention the concept of team topologies, which I think is a book and a blog and gives us a very useful sort of vocabulary to talk about team compositions. And it talks about uh, teams that are value stream teams, basically development teams that ship software that the company earns money with, and enabling teams, and security is one of the enabling teams. And then it talks about how you put it together in an efficient way. Um, and the main outcome of it is security team cannot insert itself as a gate 
in the way of value stream teams because then we delay things, we break trust, and we become adversarial instead of partners and enabling team. Keith, you put your hand up there. Yeah, it's really interesting because um, when you look at a lot of modern engineering companies, the engineering function, the development function, is doing the bidding of product, okay? And it is very difficult for you to prioritize things in your backlog which are not uh, aligned to RevGen features. So, you know, the, the actual um, the synergies sort of like you, you need to get there, not just with the engineers, but with the product people as well. So it's a much broader thing, which is why humans are fundamental to this, not tools. Perfect. Um, and as we're on the topic of humans, and I, I think that'll uh, bring us nicely to Marius's questions in terms of the soft skills needed in AppSec. So, Marius, do you wanna do you wanna propose your question to to the panel? Yeah. So the question was, uh, what do we need to do as security professionals in terms of elevating our communication skills, empathy, and mindset to impact positive culture change on security enablement in developer world. Perfect. Justin, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question because I think this is one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to join security, as I was explaining before, and that's uh, to bring more empathy to the security side uh, in order to you know, better uh, build these types of relationships. So, um, so I think what we can do is really put ourselves in the shoes of the people that we're supporting and really understand their challenges, how, you know, what their goals are, what are they trying to accomplish? Especially, you know, like you mentioned, Keith, a lot of it is just driven by product and a lot of it is, uh, ship features as fast as possible. Um, but the, another side, as, as engineers know, is um, learning how to be a better engineer. And, and that means quality. That means, uh, you know, yeah, I, I think quality is a big piece of it. And I think, you know, starting to, or better communicating security as, as being part of that quality conversation is a really good way to, to, you know, sneak that in there because uh, a lot of a lot of engineers are quality driven. You know, uh, a lot of them do think, well, yeah, I just did this, but is this the most optimum way to do this? And is is this maintainable? Is it performance? You know, having security be part of that conversation, I think, is is important as well. So, yeah. So I would say really understanding um, the perspective of the developers and the people that we're supporting will help us build that empathy and, and uh, communication. I also think one other thought is consistent communication. I think there is a tendency that I've seen for security engineers to uh, think that, hey, I just I sent a Slack or I sent a Teams message to the team and I asked them to do something. Isn't that enough? No. Like having consistent meetings with people, building that true relationship, interpersonal relationship, greases the skids and makes everything a lot smoother. So I think that's where, you know, we should focus more. Perfect. Irene? Um, so I wanted to 
go with a specific example. You mentioned we also need to work with product management as well as um, engineers. So I think consistent communication and honest communication is very important. And sometimes I discuss issues with product managers and they're surprised that I don't insist it must go into next version. You must drop something else and put this security fix. And I am very honest with them, I'm doing it to establish credibility because next time when the issue is truly must do and I'm jumping up and down and saying it must go into the next release, they will trust me because I'm not doing it for each issue, which sometimes is a problem with security people. We think everything must be technically perfect and everything must be fixed. And actually security has a lot of trade-offs and, and you must establish this trust. You can't declare everything is critical priority. You must demonstrate that you can distinguish between nice to fix and must fix and then when you actually need this currency to say the platform is burning, drop something because we must fix it, then we will have this currency to, to pay for this emergency. And I think communication with, with empathy and communication with honesty is critical to establish this kind of relationship. Perfect. Keith, can I come to you? Yeah, you, you know, this is this is all great. I mean, the reality is that security isn't a black and white thing. Your security posture, the way in which you do things, the way in which you prioritize things has to be proportionate to the business's appetite for risk. You know, that's the, that's the, the reality here. You, you know, there, security just isn't binary. You, you, you know, there are, there are things that are saying that, you know, it's all about, well, what's going to hurt us? If it's going to hurt us, have we got something in place? If not, hey, listen, we've got to fix it. Um, but, you know, this is, this is where we need to think more creatively sometimes, you know, to really kind of understand um, Things like purpose, uh, because you know it, it also depends on on it's very situational as well. The level of uh, criticality of defects, and obviously for me, a defect is a defect until it actually hits production, and then it is potentially vulnerable, and that vulnerability is potentially exploitable. So dependent on different organizations is going to depend on where that risk appetite lies along that uh, that journey and it's all about you know understanding you know the business as a whole rather than having an engineering focus on excellence sometimes fine amaris i'll spin it back to you yeah so essentially i guess the question came about is because i was reading a few books and I started to implementing things in practice. And I, the more I read, the more I realized I kind of started combining. There is a book called Smartest Person in a Room. And I think there's a lot of security folks that fall into that category. And then I combine kind of knowledge from CISO Evolution, how to basically align 
and tell better stories and to align security to the business strategy. So the, the whole point was asking and posing the question is because security folk over the years, you know, been known to say no. And then when you keep saying no or, keep, or you keep giving requirements, you're not you're no longer are allowed or invited to sit by the table. So your your opinion becomes irrelevant. So the the point was to make that, you know, we need to learn and empathize with development and other teams when we are, you know, trying to answer questions. No, not for the sake of, you know, waiting for the question to finish just for the sake of answering. You need to understand the question. You need to empathize of where the other party is coming from. And especially there's one perfect, I guess, an example comes from where probably a lot of people have similar conversations where, you know, a security person goes to a development lead or someone in that similar case where he says, you know, why have you released the code to production with vulnerabilities still on it? And he says, well, because I didn't have time. And he says, why you didn't have time? Because I have to meet my KPIs. And it says, okay, so what's the KPIs? And the KPIs obviously does not include vulnerabilities in the code. They include bugs, but not vulnerabilities. So, the, you know, the, the question and, and, and the empathy and is to getting to the bottom of it, why it's it's not happening. And then hopefully to, you know, to create a mutual agreement that we should include vulnerabilities, you know, um, as KPIs. Because if you compare normally, like looking from any kind of point of view, Fixing vulnerabilities in a production is is much more costly than fixing them in pre-production. Therefore, you have a return on investment. So, combining all of those things together, you can hopefully influence development teams to work a bit more on security. The same as when I was building DevSecOps frameworks for various companies, I stole a few great ideas from AWS, and I really loved how they, you know, train development teams on security, how they, what Keith mentioned, you know, they train development teams to understand the likelihood and impact, basically where the risk comes about. So when they do a threat, first sort of threat model, they can understand what's the likelihood and what's the impact. And then when they evaluate risk, whether the risk is above the appetite, then they can escalate into that next level of, you know, security involvement. They can assign person who will do a, a sort of, what they would call a sort of um, security enhancement and do a second level of threat modeling with security person. And then we can iterate through that threat modeling and get security, you know, done properly. So I think that's that's the whole point. I think, you know, as security professionals, we need to empathize and, and, and start to understand that we're not always smartest person in the room. We need to learn from from people who we collaborate with, and 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 do and security is a collaborative effort, effort and a team effort that we all want to engage with. Perfect. I, I, to be fair, I think this ties us quite nicely into um, Dustin's uh, question for the panel. So I, I'll, I'll I'll let you take the floor if you don't mind, Dustin. Yeah. So my question was, how can you motivate or incentivize the engineering teams to actually take action on security findings? Keith. You're, you're grinning away there. I'll, I'll let you kick off. <laughs> so developers, engineers are a competitive bunch of people. Gamify it. Have team versus team. Bug finding, bug fixing. Let them uh, get in the ring, stick some gloves on, see what happens. Fine. <laughs> Irene, you are, you're, <laughs> I think you like that answer. I'll come to you next. <laughs> um, sure. So I think you cannot have motivation for security in an organization that doesn't have motivation for quality. If you have engineering organization where people care about the quality, people take 
pride in delivering quality software, then you can consider the security messaging of success. If you are hired as a public person in an organization where quality is not great, where they don't have internal testing culture, then I think you will have a pretty miserable time. So to me, incentives towards security align with incentives towards quality. And um, another piece of motivation, I think in knowledge-based professions anyway, is people need to understand why. I don't disagree with gamification, by the way, I'm just expanding and giving other options. So it helps people to understand why I need to fix it. What can happen if this kind of issue gets into production? So whether through sharing pen test issues with engineers or having some kind of internal, maybe hackathon, breaking things, captures a flood, but not an abstract one using our stuff. But threat modeling actually I found very helpful to start people thinking what can happen, what can go wrong with our product. And it helps bring alive all these ideas. We tell them in terms of a secure coding, don't use these functions, don't use these patterns, do parameterized queries or whatever, to help them understand why really brings alive all, all the things that we want from, from engineers. You're mute. <laughs> My turn. <laughs> Marius, I'll come to you. <laughs> yeah, so I guess I, there's a few things I wanted to mention that the first things first, I think what Keith mentioned, gamification is a great way, but I think sort of what we used to do in security as well, some similar to say, for example, we used to do phishing, for example, not necessarily training, but like exercises. And I want to emphasize that normally we would catch people who would fail the phishing exercise. But my point is, we always want to have a positive spin. So instead of catching someone who fails, we we'll always highlight some people, you know, who never, never, for example, clicked on a link. So the similar way would be in development world, you know, if we do a gamification, we can, we can, uh, you know, highlight people who've done something well and always praise people instead of, you know, catching someone that failed something. So that's been, I think the other point that I've seen a great success before is knowledge sharing sessions. So I'm always been, you know, a fan of going to various conferences and, and, and kind of highlighting to even development teams or anyone within kind of security department, like I would bring ideas from say from, for example, what I've seen in Black Hat, you know, when you, for example, telling people about, you know, how to rectify cross-site scripting and things like that, you know, you're just talking about theory. But when you bring and highlight specific issues or specific scenarios where how has this been exploited in the wild, how, you know, misconfigurations can lead to problems and you highlight those issues, I think that's great. And then secondly, I think if you do a gamification, assigning prizes such as, you know, um, tickets to a, a security conferences for developers, I think that could be beneficial not only to the developers, but the knowledge that they would bring back to organization can be invaluable. So the, these kind of extracurricular activities that link to training and further development, I think that would be a great point to make. 
I think that's um, I think that's a good idea. It's it's not something that I've heard previously. You know, developers been offered the chance to win tickets to go to kind of these events to learn further. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that's something you know the the listeners can take away from this. And Dustin, I'll come back to you. Yeah, great, great points. Um, this is an area that I've spent a lot of time studying and focusing on the last few years. Um, I think it's a really good point to emphasize reinforcement over punishment. Um, you know, for those folks who pass fishing tests, like you were saying, um, is uh, maybe even provide an option to have them take less training than everyone else as an incentive, right? You, you, you typically have to do some training to comply with, you know, the compliance uh, requirements there, uh, but maybe they can do less. Maybe they could do training light when it comes to fishing only spend you know 10 minutes on it versus that full hour or whatever that other people have to go through so just a thought um i also think that there's a lot of depth to the term gamification that maybe maybe not everybody is familiar with and i would definitely encourage everybody who's listening to uh look into it more because it, you know it's not just competition i think competition is, is one approach but it really comes down to understanding what drives and motivates people. Um, you know, there's other things. They, they want to be creative. They want to understand the purpose. You know, like Daniel Pink's Drive book is a good example of helping, helping understand just how much purpose really does help motivate people. Um, you know, and competition is important too, but I also think recognition is something that is very important. Uh, kind of goes hand in hand with competition because you can recognize the winners. Um, uh, the other thing I would uh, bring up here is thinking about the rewards, kind of like you were saying, Marius, is uh, are there physical rewards? Are there um, events or, or exclusive things that you can have people uh, be invited to, you know, by doing well uh, for security? Um, I think another piece to think about is, you know, if you want to change it, measure it. And just the fact that uh, there's a little competitiveness here, but having some sort of maturity score associated with each of the development teams uh, and then spinning that positively where you're actually recognizing teams that are doing better. Um, you could have like a single score that's, you know, created of weighted metrics like uh, how quickly they fix issues, whether they have a security champion, you know, those types of things can all go into calculating that score. Um, and then, you know, that's a good way to kind of express opportunities for other teams um, to, to do better. Um, so there's a lot of ideas. And I think, I think this is where you have to think about your culture and understand the people of your organization, how they're going to respond. And then you get to be creative. And this is kind of why I've naturally kind of gravitated toward this is because it's not just, hey, you should fix your issues you know, anymore. It's coming up with creative ways to incentivize and motivate people. Perfect. So I suppose as we're on the culture and topic of motivating engineers, Keith, I'll come to you next. Cool. So the question uh, from myself was, what is the number one thing that you feel engineers can do to make a fast, positive impact on security posture? Dustin? You're not in a way, I'll come to you. Yeah, I, this is a good question. Um, 
one of the reasons I was nodding is because I, th I think engineers have a lot of power to do the right thing when it comes to organizations. Uh, my personal experience is that typically, and this is something that Keith, you brought up earlier, product is kind of driving the roadmap, but in, at least in a healthy culture, they're always coming to engineering to understand timelines. What is this going to take? How long is it going to take to build this thing? So the engineering org has an opportunity to do the right thing, right? They have an opportunity to say, okay, yeah, we can develop that feature. Um, here's how long it's going to take because it's not just getting it out the door as quickly as possible. It's, it's making sure that the quality is there as well, right? Well, we need to build tests to make sure that it works correctly. We need to make sure that what we build is performing well. We need to make sure it's maintainable and that the code quality is there. We need to make sure it's secure, right? It all kind of ties together. So that's where I think engineering has a major impact on security posture in general. And even in the shoes of an individual developer, it's the same thing. They're sitting there at their keyboard, they're, they're creating the code that the business depends on. Uh, each individual developer, I would encourage to think about those things. How can I do this in a way that is high quality? Because uh, that's going to create the right feedback loop overall to ensure, uh, you know, that the code base is is of sufficient quality and secure. Um, so that's where I think engineers can make a huge impact. Perfect, Marius. Yeah, I think I would wanted to make two things. I think uh, what Justin mentioned feedback loop. I think the speed of feedback loop, that's the key point. And I think that's why we're pushing security automation because, you know, but there is a point where we need to understand the root cause and how we can do security automation. But the key point, I think, and that's why some are specific, you know, I won't mention names, but there's specific tools that embed security, for example, application, you know, scanning or code testing, static code testing in, in the development IDEs that, you know, the, the quicker you get that feedback loop where something might have gone wrong, the easier it is to fix it instead of, you know, catching it somewhere pre-production or in production. So the, the, the more we can shift left and the more, the quicker feedback loop to the development team, the more gain we're going to get from it as well. And I think secondly is emphasizing and teaching, especially probably engineers that worked in the development world, understanding the threats and understanding how specific threats, you know, how they can impact their code, you know, and, and how we need to, and why we need to address those security issues. Because, you know, sometimes I think development teams might lack context without, you know, talking about, you know, what would happen if, you know, that specific flaw might be, you know, uh, exploited or that specific, you know, bug might be exploited so what's the impact of the of the whole of the whole platform of the of you know that specific thing that we are building so having understanding having a real world examples to them explain in layman terms you know what what happens why these threats are you know prevalent what would happen if this data gets exposed this pi that it gets exposed and things like that to you know to fill in the gaps i think that would be a big benefit for them so that's i think the two key areas perfect irene um, yeah, fast positive impact. It's it's really tough one. Um, so in terms of 
deep impact. I think introducing threat modeling is always a winner. It just lifts everything, your requirements, your approach to, to testing, general understanding of uh, security issues and how, if you're in a multiple teams, pictures that work on multiple components, well-organized threat modeling actually helps uh, people to see connections that maybe they didn't see before. I forgot what it's called, but there is this joke, but not a joke, principles that architecture of our software reflects organizational structure of our organization. And sometimes you have these stupid walls where people make assumptions on whose responsibility is that. And the only way to break these assumptions is sometimes to have a kind of joint threat modeling session. And then you see, oh, I expected you to care about that. No, we expected you to take care about this threat. And then you find we are completely vulnerable here because no one actually built any mitigations for this. So I don't know if it's quick, but it's very, <clears throat> very impactful. Um, another thing that I really like is um, when something is found very late in the cycle. So obviously, worst of all, externally, when your customers tell you, or external security researchers tell you, we found this vulnerability. In addition to basically fixing it, we want to have this culture where people think, do we have other similar things? Let's find and fix them before these external people find them for us. And what was missing in our life cycle that we didn't catch them earlier? If, if you can this culture, again, I don't think it's a quick fix, but it's probably one of the deepest improvements you can start going for. So whatever is found late or worst of all externally, let's do this analysis. Do we have similar things and what we can build so we can catch similar things early on? Perfect. And I'll come back to you, Keith. So, so mine is, uh, is very short, to be honest. Um, and it is do the simple things well. And I've got, an ex I've got my, the example that I always give because I do a lot of outreach to developers and I always finish off and say, I just want you to promise me one thing, just one thing. And that is whenever you are coding around input, you need to sanitize it. I want you to be looking at your field links. I want you to be thinking about special characters. I want you to... I do masking. I want you to remove that capability of somebody to mess with you via something like a SQL injection. Because if you look at that, so sanitization of inputs covers so many things within these frameworks. You know, it's disproportionate. It makes a significant and immediate impact to the quality of your uh, of your software. Amazing, thanks for that. I, I suppose you've all proposed your question. Um, I'll propose one on behalf of someone else that was supposed to attend, but unfortunately couldn't make it. Um, so please don't come back and ask for my technical <laughs> opinion on the matter because I, I, I won't have one. <laughs> um, so what do you see is the biggest resistance from developers, uh, methodology and tools or remediation? Uh, I'll, I'll come to you first, Marius. I think 
the, the problem from the, I think it depends obviously on organizations. Sometimes, you know, large organizations, you have a lot of politics going on, a lot of blaming each other. So, but the, the problem is, I think, and, and it, it usually it goes back to the point that developers like to work on new innovative features. They like to, you know, innovate and create new shiny things. And nobody likes to work on bug fixing or fixing something that's, you know, optimizing, especially, you know, that systems that don't support your code well. You know, nobody likes to move legacy systems into newer systems that, you know, requires, you know, um, reduce latency and things like that, reduce, you know, make sure that the platform is stable. So I guess, you know, the point is, again, I think goes back to outreach and culture goes back to talking about KPIs and where, you know, because the problem is it needs to, and, and again, go back to, to, you know, to the books I've read, it, it, it needs a person who can influence and tell a good story. You know, why we need to fix stuff, why we need a stabilize, you know, st uh, stable environment for our code to work, because all of that, you know, because it always, it, it comes a point where you firefight so much that you can't innovate anymore. And then things fall apart. So we're just creating that balance between, you know, stuff that we need to fix uh, to be able to innovate. And, you know, because sometimes people don't think about that far ahead in the future. You know, you might be innovating, innovating until stuff, until you start firefighting too much and you can't innovate anymore. And people can't foresee that, that you know, we need to work on stabilization. We need to work on, on, you know, the platforms where the code is kept. And we need to make sure that, you know, if they don't break, we need to stop firefighting and finding out the root causes of issues, why stuff happening, you know, why our pipeline falls apart, you know, or production falls apart when we release the, the new code, if it, you know, it's not been optimized or something hasn't been missed. So I think these are key features, you know, having that collaboration and, and trust and honesty between departments that we can reach consensus of, you know, and foresee the few, the, the issues that might come about in the future. Amazing. Irene, I'll come to you next. Um, what I found developers don't like is tools that are bad for developers. So some kind of security-centric tools doesn't integrate with the normal workflows. It requires people to stop and then go look somewhere else. S things that are not integrated, things that steal your time and Sometimes I can see tools that evolve into a complete black box and there is one or two people who know how to interpret what they say and then they become a blocker for everyone. You, you need to wait for the high priest of your static analyzer to interpret the findings for you. So. Developers like developer-friendly tools. This is my impression from. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Okay. Yeah. And Keith, you're smiling away. I'll come to you. And and it's absolutely right. Those two elements. Uh, is it the tooling? Is it the is it the remediation? They're inextricably linked. And the reason they're inextricably linked is that a lot of the tools today are absolute garbage, and they create lots of noise and people just don't know what they need to fix what they should fix which is you know what's your false positives on this i mean i've seen tools 
I've seen teams which have all of a sudden woken up and got thousands, thousands of defects pushed into their Jira queue because of a particular tool to the point where people just go, turn it off. It's just, this isn't helping us at all. So, you know, it is a tooling thing. You know, developers like tools that they can in, they can interact with, that they can actually understand what the output is. But also the remediation, you know, if you've got a whole bunch of things which need to be remediated, where do you start? You know, it becomes overwhelming. And that is a human problem because humans don't scale. Perfect. Dustin, I'll finish you. Yeah, the way that I like to talk about this is in terms of clarity. Okay. When, when you say devs want dev-friendly tools, what does that mean exactly? It means that they, they want them to clearly define what needs to be done on there. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make on the security side is we want to try to have the developers understand security to the depth that we do. We were inspired. We, you know, like security is fascinating to us. That's why we're security people. The developers want to develop at the end of the day, right? So to try to throw a bunch of issues at them and say, hey, you know, in order to fix these, you need to learn all about security and everything involved with security so that you can become a security-minded person so that you can fix them. That's too much. They don't need that. What they need is clarity. Here's what needs to be fixed. Here's the priority. Here's some tips on how to fix it. And that really does create uh, less resistance. You know, they're not going to feel like, hey, you're trying to, you're trying to throw a, a lot of work on me when all I really want to do is figure out what I need to do to clear this issue or this backlog of issues as quickly as possible so I can go back to what I like to do. Now, as a nice side effect of all of that, when you shift the culture, as people do make these fixes, they do learn security, right? But having them learn everything about security upfront before they triage or before they fix issues is going to create resistance naturally. And that's where I, I do think, you know, security teams need to spend more time figuring out how to make things more clear for developers and do more of the heavy lifting so it's easier for developers. Perfect. I think that's uh, I think that's almost our podcast concluded. Has, has anybody got anything else that they'd like to add? So it's quite interesting. If you look at some of the next gen or uh, evolutions of some of the tooling, what I'm seeing currently coming through is uh, are analysis tools that actually fix code. Now, I am I haven't seen any working properly yet, but you know, and and if they if they work, that's going to be great for um, you, you know just grinding out that stuff which uh, is just noise All right so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing some of these next gen things come through yeah i think i think what i wanted to mention then pick on what dustin said i think if security to be successful in collaboration with development teams um not only about tooling but embedding security into how development teams work so if they're working on agile methodology if they for example create the tickets on Jira, then security should work 
own tickets creating in Jira as well. So we're collaborating into development world and development tools that they use and their methodologies. So for example, if we're addressing you know, specific issues and we can go into their stand-up or into their sprint meetings and we can talk about how we can address specific bugs into the next sprint and how we can create tickets into their world instead of you know tracking them away from 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 what they know and see every day. I think that's a huge benefit in terms of in baking security into the development world. Yeah, I want to piggyback on that because I always say to meet the developers where they are. Okay, instead of, hey, here's a new fancy SaaS tool. Hey, developers, go into the dashboard and figure out how to use the tool. Forget that. You know, use the tool to generate Jira tickets or whatever they use uh, for their work. And and since they're already in there working in Jira, you know, there you go. But it's just another, it's it's a way to reach them without the barrier of now you have to learn a brand new tool. Yeah, yeah but with, with that, Dustin, you have to be mindful of the things coming through into their queues. You know, as I, as I said, if, if you get somebody that gets dumped with 15, 20 or more uh, tickets, which are security related, they then have to go and get triage. They then have to get uh, prioritized in, in the stand-up and stuff like that, and the sprint planning. You know, it, it becomes, you, you have to balance that. It has to be good good quality stuff coming through, stuff that matters. Perfect. Dustin, oh, you were going to mute there, Dustin? Oh, I was going to respond to that, but I, I didn't go know. On. Have, no, uh, go on. Yeah, I think it's a really good point, you know, this isn't to say you should throw all of your tools findings into Jira. You you need to take the time to tune your tool. You know, I, I think a good first step would be have security when you implement a new tool in your environment. Take the time to understand what are the types of findings coming through, how can I better tune this to ensure that when you do end up creating Jira tickets for developers, it's for issues that are relevant to the extent possible. You know, it's the age-old false positive resistance that we've seen, and um, it's important. And it's important that security does the first initial heavy lift there instead of having developers do it. Amazing, perfect. I suppose we'll leave it there then. Um, this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank Dustin, Irene, Keith, and Marius for providing the insights into the topic as thought leaders in the industry. Um, I'll let you know where you can find them on social media uh, in the comments of the post. And thank you for listening. Um, if you'd like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts in the AppSec world, uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at gareth.davis at evolutionjobs.co.uk. See you next time.